Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Would you please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight. You who are our strength and our Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we come to the end of the section of the book of Romans. It's on doctrine. So we move from uh, theology to doxology. We move from the study of the character of God and how he has planned and worked among sinful men from the beginning to worship, which is what doxology is. So because I'm a very sophisticated man, I decided to use the dictionary. And so I looked up doxology. And you know, a lot of pastors speak about doxology the way uh, other people speak about passion and and meta-narrative. And you know, if you've got a sophisticated pastor, he'll say, well, we have theology and we have doxology. And of course, it's very intimidating. You think, doxology, what's that? And so I thought probably I didn't know, so I looked it up in the dictionary. And in the dictionary it said, well, it's words of of praise. And I thought, oh, okay, it's words of praise. All right, that sounds good. I'll tell them all that it's words of praise, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Then one of the definitions had, and I know this hasn't occurred to you because you're not as sophisticated as I am. One of them was, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise Father, Son. Praise him above the heavenly host. See, I'm sophisticated. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Doxology. I kid you not. It then hit me that that's doxology. <laughs> you know, how many times I typed it into the order of worship, how many times I've sung it, you know. Oh, that's the doxology, you know. What we have this morning is the end of 11 chapters of the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, teaching us the character of God. And we know the character of God through the revelation of his word in Jesus Christ, his son. 
We know the character of God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the Apostle Paul opening things up to us that we would not know otherwise. It goes on and on and on for 11 chapters. And at the end of it, we have this doxology. We have this praise, this worship, okay? Now, I want to do a couple of things. First of all, I want to show you some other places. The Apostle Paul is very good at doxology. Or another way of saying it is, the Apostle Paul is not a uh, stingy intellectual. Stingy intellectuals never end up praising anybody but themselves. They're very, very zealous for the glory of themselves. They get it in journals, they get it in books, they get it at conferences, they get it by the positions they hold. And they may say a lot of truth, but have you noticed that proud intellectuals never give themselves to worship? Have you noticed this? You don't ever want to know anything about God that does not cause you to worship him. Now, if there's an alternative to it causing you to worship him, what would it be? Well, what it would be is to doubt him, to question him, to argue with him, to condemn him. Okay? That's not what you want to do. You don't want to argue with God. You don't want to condemn God. But we all know that. So now let's look at the Apostle Paul because he's the supreme theologian. And let's look at how he regularly jumps up a whole nother level and gives himself to worship. But what I want you to notice is not just that he does it, I also want you to notice where and when he does it because the, the juxtaposition between when he erupts into praise, into worship, and what he's just been saying is quite interesting. So first of all, in 1 Timothy 6, verses 13 to 16, he writes this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you, I charge you, in view of God, that you, it's very personal, Keep the commandment without stain or reproach. You obey, and don't you dare not obey. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, and it's right there that he goes into worship. All of a sudden he says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be glory, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, that feels weird. He's going on about, you keep this commandment. And then he's like up in the heavens, worshiping God. Just like that, he's off and running. All right, here's another one. 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 to 17. 
it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, okay, declarative statement. Then he says, among whom I am foremost of all. Really personal, right? I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the foremost sinner of all. Yet, for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, and it's implied there, the foremost needer of worship, of, of mercy, I'm a needer of, of mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him. For, this is very, very personal, isn't it? As an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Now that again is, is, is interesting, invigorating, weird. He's talking about how he's the chief object of mercy and that this would give hope to other people to come to Jesus, right? And then all of a sudden, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. It's like the apostle Paul comes to the end of himself. <laughs> he's like... Enough about me. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In Ephesians 3, beginning with verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees, again, very personal, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom all fatherhood has gotten its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Bam! Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know? And you say, well, why are you yelling? Well, the words yell. Forever and ever. Amen. That's yelling. And so when I read this stuff and I, and I look at the intensity of the Apostle Paul and his worship, okay, and what I keep picturing in my mind's eye is my father. And I picture my father at various times in our family life where it was time to be done with all the caviling, with all the argument, with all the disrespect, with all the sin, with all the pride, in fact, it was time to be done with his wife. Now, I don't mean that he ever did that. But you could tell there was a time where my father's jowls would start shaking. And that was when the economy of the universe had been flipped upside down. And God didn't matter. 
And it was time to flip it back right side up so that God would be all in all. This is very typically a father thing to do. Fathers have an instinct for when the world has been flipped upside down. Do you understand this? Partly because they're able to maintain a little bit more distance from what's going on in front of them than mothers are. And so the father is able to observe and to have empathy and sympathy and all those pithy things. Okay? But also to be observing from the perspective of God. And typically when they get to the point where they realize that the entire world has been flipped upside down, they become... Now, normally, fathers are very gentle, very reasonable, very sane, very rational, very logical, very empathy, very sympathy, very loving, generally. But sometimes, in their household, in an elders meeting, in a church, at a city council meeting, The world has been flipped upside down and God is the one thing that doesn't matter. And a godly man at that point, his jowls will shake. And what, what will he do? Oh my goodness. <laughs> now, I've told you this story before. I didn't tell it in the first service, but I'm gonna tell it now. We had a country church, and when I went to the, my first church, it had 18 people with the last name Summers on it. And that was out of like 90. And I said to Mary Lee, there are 18 Summers in this church, and I said, you know, <laughs> I hope it goes well with the Summers. Well, we got there, and there, you know, as with every family, there were good Summers and bad Summers. Good winners, bad winners. <laughs> After a few years, we got to the point where we had to deal with the bad summers. And we dealt gently with them. There was a man who would not come to church. He came, but only about twice a year, Easter, Christmas, and Easter. Okay, he was single, so he didn't come for his kids to be baptized. And he hadn't come for a wedding because he wasn't married. And he lived with his parents and ran the farm with his dad. And it was very, very interesting. Our clerk of session, a godly man, Don Jared, had a farm abutting his or actually, he was running it from this man's, uh, hmm, I don't know whether it was, or I think it was his aunt. And so Don himself took on the job. So we were going out and visiting everybody that didn't come to church, but they had their name on the roll as a member of Rosedale Presbyterian Church. And we went out and asked them to come to church. 
We told them that they had promised to be a part of the fellowship of the church. They had promised to honor God. They weren't honoring God. They were simply coming Christmas and Easter to keep their name on the list. I remember one of, one of the men in the community, it wasn't a Summers, he actually wrote me and basically said that stuff and said, you know, how dare you question, I pay my dues. And they actually would say, I pay my dues. And so like once a year, they'd send in a check for what my, you know, I don't know how much, but they paid their dues. They were country people, that's what they did. But they never came to church, are you with me? And so finally, after a couple of years of Don going over and talking to this man, appealing to him to come to church and honor God, the time came to put his name on something that was called the inactive list. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense because he was inactive. (laughs) You know, it wasn't rocket science. (laughs) And man, the minute he was warned, that was what was going to happen. It was after a couple of years with working with him. The minute he was warned about that, this man and his parents and the relatives all had conniptions. You know, and I'm not going to go into the details of that, but, you know, he was a vet. The county psychiatrist had warnings for us about what this might do to his mental health, you know, and and certain deep things connected with his mental health that were designed to intimidate us to realize that it would be a violation of anything that was precious in America if we put him on the inactive list. But he wouldn't come to church, right? And so you know how these things shape up in a church, right? You can all feel it, you know? It can be a school, it can be a church, whatever, you know? And so sure enough, it's shaped up. And there came the annual meeting. And the elders decided, given the intense opposition and hostility they were getting from this clan, that they would all sit up on the platform behind a table. Now, me, I'm just the moderator, all right? I just sit to the side and ask the elders to answer the people who are angry, you know? Because it's the elders that did it, you know? And so I'm standing at a podium. They're sitting at a table there. And I mean, people get up and they say this, they say that, they say the other. It is intense. It is angry. And at one point, one of the women said, you're saying, say his name is John. You're saying John Doe isn't a Christian? John Doe fought in Vietnam. How can you say he isn't a Christian? It's an actual quote. The logic was impeccable. (laughs) And I'm standing there, I'm 30 years, 31, 32 years old. Who's 32? Raise your hand. Okay, (laughs) I'm you, (laughs) you know? And my insides have turned to jelly. This is my first church. I'm like, oh no, what do I do now? I'm blowing the place up. What's going on? Oh, no. You know, right, Richard? You know what I'm talking about. It's like, oh. But stiff upper lip, acted like I had everything under control. And there was the clerk of session giving an answer. And the Lord had revealed to him a two-page document on the importance of vows that he read. It was just wonderful. And he was a man everybody respected. He was the best farmer in the area. He had a bunch of harvester silos. 
tremendous good hurt, and he was humble, and he was meek. Okay? Well, in that church was a man named Sam Westra. Sam Westra stood about 6667. He was 92 or 93. He had a little bit of hunch by this time, or a, that's not a hunch, but a, huh? Stoop. Stoop. And he wore a zoot suit. He had this wool suit, dark, and the coat came down to his knees. And he walked with a cane, and he, draw, he drove a Plymouth Horizon. Any of you remember them? Yeah, it's like a Volkswagen Golf or a Rabbit, or it's like a, uh, it's much smaller than a, a Kia Soul. Much smaller. And he never said much, but I went to visit him. I've told you this before. I went to visit him in his home. His wife had died recently. Everybody in town said that you could set your watch by him driving every day to see his wife at the nursing home, and he would go over and he would brush her hair. Now, do you love Sam? And he was a serious Dutchman. Few words, but you went in his house and he had a large print Bible right next to the phone. And the thing that gave me the most joy about him is that the Bible's pages were filthy. Most of my people, their pages were clean. You want a filthy Bible. You know what I'm saying, dirty, because you've used it so much. Sam was there during the congregational meeting. Sam never said anything, anytime, for any reason, ever. He was a man of few words. But for some reason, at the beginning of that meeting, I asked him to open the meeting in prayer. Well, have you ever heard a Dutchman pray? Seriously, have you ever heard a Dutchman pray? You know how a Dutch prayer goes? A Dutch prayer is something like this. Oh Lord, we bow down before you and humble ourselves. We are not worthy of one of your many mercies. We fear you, God. We adore you, God. May your name be, this is a Dutch prayer, okay? And so I asked him to pray. I'd never done that before. He gets up and he leads us in prayer. And it's a prayer like that. You know, it, it, it is in heaven. It is not here on earth. And then we get in the meeting. And I'm telling you, it's coming fast and heavy. And you've got the Vietnam thing and the Christian thing. And you've got all this stuff going on. And every, it's madder than a hornet, the whole meeting. And my poor clerk of session and the elders are up there taking all the hits, you know. It's been years in the making. They've gone out and visited again and again and again, the people that don't come. They've been kind to them. They've been, he had been cursed, my clerk of session, by people he had spent his life living among. All right? Very gentleman. And it goes on and on. And finally... Right? Well, okay, he would have been sitting. He would have been sitting right about here. And the parents of that man were sitting like right. So you're him, and they're right here. Right in front of him. And remember, he's like 6'8". 
<laughs> and all of a sudden, lo and behold, Sam, Sam Westra stands up. Well, I'd never seen this before, you know. Oh, no, right now, Sam! <laughs> oh, what's going to happen now? But I don't say that. I don't even think it. I just feel it. And so I say, yes, Mr. Westra. Yes, Sam Westra. He stands up, and he turns, and he faces the rest of the congregation. As his cane here, he's on the aisle, and he plants his cane. And he says, now, he said, I've been listening. And of course, he speaks very slowly. I have been listening to what is going on here today. And I have asked myself, what, and he's looking out over here, what does it mean to be a member? What does it mean? Well, to be a member means that when you meet, the member comes. That's what it means to be Remember, and I can feel the tension growing even more intense. Because now I know the direction he's going, <laughs> and it ain't, ain't going to be pretty. And so I'm standing there with sort of a stupid grin on my or smile. <laughs> and he says, "Now he says, when a member, if he were to break his leg." He might miss once or twice. But he's a member, you know, and, and when he heals, he will be there, you know. And then he gives, I don't remember, but another illustration like that, you know, like, and if he's sick, a member might, you know. Are you all with me? Then, he's there, he's looking at you, and all of a sudden, he pivots, and he faces the parents sitting right here. And he's towering over them because he's six, 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 seven, and they be seated. And he says, now, let's say that the guy's name was John, the son. He says, now I have known Johnny since he was a little boy, he said Johnny's farm was next to my farm. He says, I don't know what is wrong with Johnny. <laughs> oh, dear brother, I mean to tell you. And I'm sitting there, I'm going, <sighs> And then he said a couple of, you know, maybe Johnny has a broken arm. Maybe Johnny has been sick. And then he takes his hand that has this cane in it, okay? And he's hawking over this couple. And he says, uh, so here's the cane. He's facing them. They're right there. And he has it 
No, it's in his right hand. He says, now, I have had enough. Enough! I think he said it three times, shouting it. Six, seven. And I'm completely gone. I mean, I'm just so far gone, I don't know. I just like, oh no, what do I do? You know, because of course when he said this is enough, the father of the church had seen that God had been relegated. And the father said, this will stop. This will stop. He got done. All he said was enough, enough, enough. Yelled it. And then he sat down. And there I am, moderator of this meeting. And so I said, is there anybody else who would like to speak? That's what I said. And it was silent. And I said, all right, I would entertain a motion to adjourn. So moved. Second. Second. All in favor, aye. Aye. All opposed, nay. Not a word. We are adjourned. You know, I mean, I was jello. I was jelly. I was a cream puff. I was, I was smashed. The next Sunday, there were 47 people there. Over half the church never came back. Okay? Over half the church never came back. But do you know what happened? What happened was that a few weeks later, a, a, a pew and a half of young men from that community who had no church began to come to church. And I looked at them and I'm thinking, where did these dudes come from? Do you remember what John Wesley says? John Wesley says, you know, if you have a fire, people will show up to watch. That was his description of revival preaching. And all of a sudden, people who had no fear of God but were young enough to remember before the world robbed them of it. Young men came to church. Now, you heard the Apostle Paul's worship. He has gone through the most gnarly truths that you can imagine in the book of Romans. You with me? And they start gnarly, and they only get gnarlier as you go through the book of Romans. Okay? They start with the wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness. Which of us has faith for that to be our gospel message today? The wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness. 
And then, because the Jews are feeling superior to the Gentiles, he then takes on the Jews. And he says, you people are no better. As a matter of fact, you're worse. You know, you say a man should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? And he moves through the doctrines. This one, this one. You know, he opens up God's plan of salvation. And what is God's plan of salvation? God's plan to save us is his intense denial of our self-righteousness. He says, God will not honor your good works. You do not have anything to contribute to the righteousness of God. And then we say, oh, oh yeah, I do. <laughs> and he says, no, you don't. And we go, but I have a little bit. He says, you have none. We say, but what am I supposed to bring? And he says, you come with that scandalous cornerstone that you despise, which is the righteousness of faith. <laughs> and we go, no, I don't want to bring the righteousness of faith. I want to show you my uh, costume jewelry. There's not one real stone in the lot of it, you know? It's all fake. It's all colored glass. We're bringing our bling to God, and God keeps saying, I hate your bling. And we say, yeah, but doesn't it make me look good? God says, no. It is defiance of my son. You tell me that my son's work was not needed? Are you serious? And Apostle Paul hits that over and over and over again in the book of Romans. He just, he just never stops hitting it. He will not in the slightest aid and abet our rebellion against the righteousness of God that is by faith. Alone. Did I say alone? It is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And there is no righteousness that we contribute. None. None. Nope. Not some. None. Then he moves on and shows you that it was by this righteousness that Abraham was saved. Because, you know, we all want to explain that, you know, Abraham was saved by works, you know. Abraham was righteous. But no. Abraham was actually an idolater. God chose Abraham. God set his affection on Abraham. And God said to him, get up and go. And so don't argue with me that this is not the way it was at the beginning with Abraham. This is exactly what it was like at the beginning. And then he explains there are not two paths of salvation. There's only one. Jesus Christ is the only one that will save you. The only one. Can't save yourself. And this is how Abraham was saved. This is how you will be saved. You will not save yourself. 
Well, once he's really hit us with the doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone, a completed work applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Done. Done. What do you think he has to do then? (laughs) Well, we're weasels, aren't we? You know, we're such weasels. And so about the time that we're okay with God choosing to save us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we then come back at him and what began with Jesus turns around to us and we're about ready to tell people to get circumcised and to be circumcised ourselves and to, and you know, you know, we began with the Holy Spirit, but now we're off and running on our own. And so he goes into sanctification and he says, listen, you may not sin that grace may abound, <laughs> you know, which of course, you know, if your mother gives you some cookies and gives you kisses and, and maybe she's mad at her husband and so you take advantage, you know, you got your mom. Hey mom, what are we having for dinner? You know, and so the minute we know that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we then turn around and sin that grace may abound. And we say, well, don't you want grace to abound? If it's all of God, I mean, you know, let's sin that grace may abound, right? So then he deals with that because that is a betrayal of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Are you still with me? And he's working his way through the plan of God. Then he has to deal with the fact that we feel hopeless about sanctification. First, we're taking advantage of grace, and then we feel hopeless about sanctification. So at that point, he says, now listen, I find within me this law of sin and death. Oh, wretch that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. And so what he takes away from us in saying we must not sin. Heaven forbid that we sin that grace may abound. Then he says, thanks be to God. Because in Jesus Christ we have victory. And what is he? He is the perfect dad. Yeah. Come here, son. What? Come on, trust me. Come here. What? He's back and forth, back and forth. Rebuking, encouraging, rebuking, encouraging, rebuking, and encouraging. Do you see this? So then he moves into three chapters where he's talking about the horrors of God's choice. Choice. Because at this point, they're going, okay, okay, I'm all right with that myself, but what about God's people to choose? I mean, come on, you promised them that you would save them. You said that you would be their God to a thousand generations, and they're not here. And so he says, listen, this is God's plan, and doesn't God have a right to have his plan? You know, doesn't God have a right to have his plan? And this is something that is absolutely antithetical to American identity and thinking. Again and again, the men that write about this, fathers in the faith from past centuries, 
What they say over and over again at this text is, God is the creator. And it is the prerogative of the creator to do precisely what he chooses to do. And it is the requirement of the creature to give him glory whatever he does. That's not something that you learned in, in, in public high school. But sadly, that's not something you learned in a classical school. <laughs> and that's not something you learned in homeschool. Unless you had my mother for a mother. <sighs> Who, her whole life, she spent relegating me. You have no idea how far down you can be relegated by Mary Lou DeWalt Bailey, <laughs> you know? Greatest privilege of my life. And they keep arguing with him, telling him that he has to follow their, their shabby, pathetic sense of fairness and justice. They keep arguing. And so the Apostle Paul says, doesn't the pot, potter have the right to do with the clay what he wants? And you see, that's the argument about God being the creator. The creator has every right to do what he wants. And he does not have to answer to the complaint of the pot and the clay. I'm, I mean, I'm sorry, but by the virtue of saying the word creator, it's the end of the argument. The way it used to be in a home when you said father was the end of an argument. <laughs> you know? Oh boy, we're so full of ourselves, aren't we? And so you go through him saying, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What are you going to say to me about that before they ever had done anything? They're two sons, the same mother, the same father, nestled together in the mother's womb before they've done anything. It, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Okay, come on, what are you going to say? Doesn't the potter have the right to do with the clay what he wants? Now listen. If any of you say at this point that you don't object, you're a liar. There is not one of us who can honestly, truthfully say that we have no objections to the ways of God. Don't argue with me about this. Every one of us has objections to this. We do, <laughs> you know? I do. It was very interesting in listening to the, um, the different fathers in the faith who have written on this. I was driving back from a meeting last night down in Kentucky, and so I had it all in my email programs, cut and paste, and then push buttons, and it played on my speakers, right? And it was very interesting. These are godly men. And several of them said things that kind of shook me. One of them, who's almost my favorite, 
Um, it's not Calvin. I won't tell you who it is. But one of them said, you know, without evil, are you ready for this? Without evil, many of God's perfections would never have had a good display. In other words, sin, are you ready for this? Sin brings God glory. Sin brings God glory. And listen, if you just think about yourself, you realize that's true. Because you realize that when your father speaks to you in a way that makes you see your sin or your mother, right? That it humbles you. And that sin ends up glorifying God because you return to the place that you should be in. You're humbled. And a lot of us, it takes our sin for that to happen. (laughs) Right? Right? I mean, honestly, how does a guy get humbled without sinning? I mean, I'm laughing because I've heard so many of you say this to me privately or to us as pastors, you know. So, you know, I'm saying it publicly. We don't normally say this. Sin sets in stark, beautiful relief the mercy of God. How does the mercy of God get displayed without sin? Now, I know you don't like me saying that, but it's a simple question, answer it. You can see how the omnipotence of God is displayed simply in creation. We don't even need men for that. You can see how the wisdom of God, you can see all kinds of God's perfections perfectly displayed without sin. But how does God's grace, how does God's mercy? And I would say, how about his love? Okay, we can all see how this opens up the horizon of the perfections of God. You know, right? Are we going to really say it would be the same world if the Son of God had not been born of a woman under the law, been humiliated and crucified? Would we know all the character of God if that had never happened? You know, Jesus says that it's the man who has been forgiven much, who loves much. Who would we be without sin? How much would we love God without sin? Now, I've kept saying that you don't like me saying this. And the reason I say that is that the minute I say that sin has presented many of God's perfections in relief, visible, and therefore for him to be glorified through, we say, well, then God created evil. (laughs) That's where we go. We all go there. But What does the Bible say about God and evil? The Bible says that God is holy and good. 
does a holy and good God create sin? No, he doesn't. Okay? He is not the what? The author of sin. And so what do we do with this? Well, what we do with it is one of two things. Well, maybe three. One thing is that we become a philosopher. And we start talking about uh, theodicy. And we, we start coming up with sophisticated theories about sin, judgment, the goodness of God, suffering, and we spend our lives yakking about it and getting published, our yakings getting published. Okay? And listen, you may think that I just have an attitude towards scholars. And I have both an appreciation and an attitude, that's true. But I tell you that most of the men that write on this text who are godly warn against philosophy at this point. So I just, I'm not original. In fact, what one of them says is, you know, philosophers say that the point of existence is happiness. In fact, he says all philosophers say that the goal is happiness. Well, if you study utilitarianism, you know that they say that what is right is that which causes the greatest amount of good happiness for the greatest number of people. And once you have that philosophical position, then you completely understand Papa Joe Stalin killing 50 to 100 million last century. It's just that you take the short perspective and he takes the long view. And if we're going to end up with an enlightened existence of all mankind in the world, it's a small sacrifice to kill 50 to 100 million if you can end up with utopia. Are you with me? What has been done in the name of utilitarianism in this world? Every baby that dies, dies to protect the happiness of man. And God says he hates the bloodshed of the innocents. The calculations of philosophers are utterly wicked. I'm not saying there aren't any godly philosophers. We all know David Talcott. But let's not act as if one swallow doth a summer make. Okay? But most of us just take a leap into uh, sort of double talk and insecurity and fears and shutting off our minds and, and having dialogue with ourself and, and being susceptible to accusations of other people against the God that we love and coming up with schemes whereby we can protect the dignity and glory of God and, and yet still protect his prerogatives which, of course, is a fool's errand, you know? I mean, have you had fun, you know, trying to deny what Scripture plainly teaches in order to protect God? 
It doesn't work. So what are your other options? Well, your other option is uh, to, your other option is to worship. Your other option is to worship. Because worship always is the end of yourself. <laughs> you know, finally, if we worship, we can be done with our unutterably boring self. Aren't you sick of yourself? (laughs) Oh my goodness. I am. Isn't your wife sick of you? And is your husband sick of you, dear sweetie pie? And children, your mother is sick of you. She really is. She kisses you. So when I was preaching the first service, I got to this point and I thought, okay, should I do it? I thought, yeah, I'm going to do it. But then I had to decide between Tim Bailey, Jody Killingsworth, and Max. And I chose Max. He was sitting right there. And I said, you know something? I'm going to let you in on a secret. Max is sick of you. (laughs) And then I said, but actually, you're sick of Max. I mean, who is more helpful to us than Max? And why is Max helpful? Well, because he's always relegating us. (laughs) You know what relegation is, right? He's always lowering us below where we think our proper place is. And as I said this about Max, and everybody's laughing because he's here, and everybody knows it's true, we're all sick of Max, right? I mean, Max is the guy that looks at me when I confess my sins to him, and he says, shame on you. And he is right. And as I'm saying this to the congregation, Max is over there, and he's smiling, and he goes, to Annie, you know? And I said, well, I can't hear what he said, but I love that man so much, I'm going to tell you what I know he's thinking right now. What was Max saying? So I said, what Max is thinking right now is Max is so sick of himself. So I said that, and then he says, that's what he just said to me. (laughs) Oh my goodness, can you have a better definition of a Christian than people who are, we're just so sick of ourselves. And so we give ourselves to worship. Because worship needs no justification. It doesn't need any justification. And it doesn't need any justification because it's what the universe was created to do. And the birds and the tomato plants don't have to think about it. They don't see it as in competition with their own glory. 
Oh, my dear people. God He does love us. He is merciful to us. He is graceful. But it is not for us. He forgives sin. But it's not for us. It's for his glory. Okay? Now I'm going to read it one more time. This is how the doctrine of the book of Romans ends. Oh. Is that how it ends? Do you remember the story about Jonathan Edwards? Do you remember that Jonathan Edwards said that as a young man, and he had a lot of gray matter, he was very bright, Yale is issuing a long series of books that cost 75 to $150 of his works. He's bright. And as a young man, he was very bright, and he spent all his time thinking about how God could choose some and not choose others. This was his quandary. It went on and on and on and on. And then he says one day he was out in a field. Do you remember, Stephen, which doxology it was. Was it this one or was it Timothy? I, you think it was this one. Okay. And he says that he's walking in the field and all of a sudden a wave goes over him and he loses himself. This is called ecstasis, to stand outside of yourself, ecstasy. He loses himself. Keep it up, please. In what? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him? that it might be paid back to him again. In other words, who does God owe a debt to? You with me? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And Jonathan Edwards said that at that point, from that point on, nothing was as precious to him as God's sovereign will. Because in the end, it does not seem right to any of us. And so at that point, we either accept our position as a creature, or we're like Adam in the garden, demanding to be like God. And we will fall from the heavens as Satan himself, the angel of light, fell. There is nothing stupid. There is no... Uh, insecurity, there is, there is nothing shameful about Christians simply worshiping. 
It is what we're made for. We do not have to answer the fools and the scoffers. We are made to give God glory, that's all. We are made to give God's glory. And so I'll end with this. You look at yourself, you look at the way you dress, you look at the way you talk about yourself, you look at how people relate to you, you look at the discomfort of the comfort that you bring into a group of Christians, and you ask yourself whether your life is giving glory to God or glory to yourself. If you give glory to yourself in your life, you are not a Christian. It is impossible for Christians to live their lives stealing God's glory. We can't do that. And so you ask yourself how you worship on Sunday morning. I watch you. Yeah, I use this as a barometer of your spiritual condition. Christians get lost in worship. Christians get lost in worship. Unbelievers are carefully parsing their actions in the presence of the people of God based upon what they think this person and that person will think of them. Or what they'll think of themselves. Right? But worship is when we finally are able to stand outside of ourselves. Ecstasy. Forget our mother and father, our wife, our husband, our children. Forget Pastor Bailey. Because we are... And you remember, (laughs) I have finally found a way to live in the presence of the Lord. Let's close our worship with prayer and singing glory to him. Our Father God, we are so weary of ourselves. Father, would you please give us relief Would you open our eyes to the glory of your sovereign decrees? Would you give us love for your choice? Would you cause us to abhor the filthy rags of our own righteousness? And would you not unite us under the cross of your blessed Son? We pray in Jesus' name.